Ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us on the Security Insider podcast for the final in our three-part series on the Security 2025 report. Once again, we are joined by our panel to discuss issues around expanding public-private partnerships and how all of the goals that we have touched on coming out of the report so far might be achieved over the next few years. With us today, we have Brian DeCares, CEO of the Australian Security Industry Association Limited. We have Dr. Gavril Schneider, Senior Senior Researcher, Director uh, at the Australian Security Research Centre. We have Nicholas Martin, Chairman of the Forum of Australian Security Executives. And we have Cameron Smith, Director, Security Licensing and Enforcement Directorate at the New South Wales Police. One uh, One of the other findings in the report moving on from this point is that you you talk about the need to improve uh, or expand on public-private partnerships, national security and crisis management roles within government agencies. Why is that important? And do you believe that there is an appetite within government for that kind of expansion? Um, well, I mean, I'm just going to leverage of what Nick said around the shift to convergence and resilience. If you just look and I had an interesting conversation with somebody in Melbourne earlier today who's a security manager for one of the passenger transport operators down there. And the conversation kind of went earthquakes, COVID, protests, and that was just this week. We're still so, waiting for the face-eating hornets. They're going to turn up <laughs> next week. <laughs> so, you know, I think when we add the virtual domain on top of that, the challenges we're going to face tomorrow are quite different to the challenges we used to face. And if we don't look at broadening our capabilities and skill sets within a sector that is designed to protect, whether it's assets, information, or people, we're losing really one of our greatest leverage points in national security and capability. And even if we look at economic stability, if we look at, for example, Woolies, when things went really wrong during COVID lockdowns, it was security officers and increased security that had to step up to solve these problems so we could have continuity of service. So I think one of the challenges we've got with where we're going is we need to broaden this idea of what protective actually means and protection actually means. And it's much bigger than the perception that most people actually have. So realistically, if we don't expand what the security industry does, we're going to increase the vulnerabilities, reduce our ability to respond effectively. And if we look at a geopolitical level, for example, what's happening with China at the moment, you know, we, we need to be able to leverage all these different aspects that the security industry can bring to the table. We've seen incredible private-public partnerships in other countries work really, really well, and there are a lot of examples of those. It's not a new idea to Australia, but it's not a very popular idea. And can I, I think it's, can, yeah. can I just jump in and ask you to explain what private-public partnerships looks like? Because there are going to be some people listening to this who think, uh-oh, are they trying to outsource the police? And then there are going to be other people listening to this who perhaps come from Nicholas's side of the fence who think Project Griffin and think, oh, hang on, does that mean if there's a terrorist attack, all of a sudden all of our security assets are going to be seconded to look after the immediate area around the attack? And then who's going to pay for that? Because we're not paying for that. So what do those partnerships look like? What are you alluding to? So there's such a broad base when you actually look internationally at how these things work. They range from, for example, there was a project, I I don't recall which Indian city it was, where the electronic security providers actually paid for and provided all the infrastructure for a smart city setup. 
that's CCTV, et cetera, et cetera. But then over time, build the government back for it. Right. Uh, the government could never have afforded to do that in their own right, and they wouldn't even know how to technically scope it. Uh, so that's just one example. You mentioned Project Griffin. You know, being able to integrate and converge the way private structures deliver on national security imperatives is, is actually already happening. And if you look at cybersecurity, for example, and the way the Australian Cybersecurity Centre puts out guidance and tries to bring industry with it, these things are already happening. Uh, we need to learn to leverage them better because realistically, private sector, government sector, none of us have unlimited funds and none of us have unlimited resources. By trying to align objectives-based projects, we can get a lot more done in the interests of both parties. And it's one of those models that it's been proven to work. It does work, but it does take a shift in thinking. And it does also change the perspective, for example, from, hold on, you know, regulators don't trust the private security industry to going, actually, you're a trusted partner. Uh, and it's quite difficult because both parties, you know, re regulators are there to enforce and regulate. That's their job. They're not there to trust and empower. Uh, and without that enforcement, we've seen already it becomes the Wild West and people do crazy things and people potentially get hurt. But when yeah. we try to regulate our way out of everything, there's never enough money to solve problems. So private-public partnerships were definitely highlighted as one of those opportunities. And that also kind of links back to the piece you mentioned earlier around expansion of focus, because I'm sure Nick will uh, allude to this. We know that a lot of security experts, when we interviewed them during the research, said that they were doing a broad range of activities, ranging from coordinating emergency management to doing staff welfare checks. There were a whole bunch of things that our security industry did that you wouldn't think were conventional security just to manage risk that organizations and individuals were exposed to just through COVID. So imagine if we had a broad-scale terrorist attack in numerous states at the same time. It's going to be a challenge. Yeah. From your point of view, Nicholas, I mean, how do you see, you know, the relationship between the public and the private or of private security and government working? Because I know at the level that you deal with, there's already a certain amount of information sharing between the intelligence agencies and senior level security. But how do you expand on that? Do you believe that there is a role for security to help expand on that and sort of grow within that national security infrastructure? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think um, we we have very good relationships, at, whether it's state and territory level with law enforcement or whether it's at the at the national level, when it comes to sharing information with organisations like um, ASIO or ACSC, the Cyber Centre, um, they've realised they need to have open dialogues with people. They need to find someone in the organisation that understands what they're doing and trying to achieve so they can pass that information that can be actioned and vice versa. If we're seeing something in our environment, we need to be able to pass that back to the government so they can build their collective intelligence picture. Um, the good thing about if you, if, you think, if you go right to the very front line with, with security guarding, they're seeing and acting on a lot of stuff. But, I, but unless they've got a conduit up through the business and into these state, territory and national organisations, that's, that's a loss of information, and, and especially when you're trying to build a collective picture. So I, I guess what I'm saying is, and we've, we've alluded to it, pathways, structures, consistency, 
if, if, if a guard's standing at the front of a building and notices a person doing something unusual two or three days in a row, are they trained to identify whether that's a problem or not? Have they got a mechanism for raising that? And if it is raised, is it going to find its way to the right the person that can action it? Um, and I think that that's, that's the real challenge. Uh, in, in our organisation, it's easy. We've got great mechanisms within and policies and procedures that, that all the guards know that if something happens, they can pass that to me and vice versa if I get notified by a security agency, I know to get it to them, to get them better prepared to deal with what may be coming. So classic example is a protest. We get a heads up, the intel passes through my team, I inform the exec, it passes down to the guards. They know what to do, they're prepared, they can prepare, prepare our sites for any eventuality. And then they can pass that back up and the, and the, the information flow goes both ways. So... That there's that, but then there's also at the national level, whether it's just making sure that the, the federal bodies are giving us the right tools to help us be more effective pr to protect our assets within reason, of course. But So I think there's a, there's a lot to it. I think there's a lot making those connections, whether it's laterally, whether it's vertically, and then outside organisations and having that dialogue running both ways. And ASIO forms a big part of that. I mean, if you think about the organisations they represent and the work that they're doing, and what they're the information they're accessing—that's pretty powerful. Yeah. So, Brian, I'll throw to you before we move to the next point because I know that we are sort of getting towards our our time limit here. But what role is ASIO playing in facilitating these public-private partnerships, and and what is the plan for helping to expand on that moving forward? Well, we already have a strong relationship with a range of different agencies, from law enforcement through. Uh, we're in, in discussions with some other agencies at the moment about a pot potential role for security in a in a future future era uh, when the, uh, the national security may change a little bit. So uh, we're having uh, dialogue with with these different groups to to try and make those connections uh, because I think what we're seeing is when there is a major crisis or a major incident, uh, security is a, is a force multiplier. It, it can add surge capacity. So when you have things like the Commonwealth Games or the upcoming Brisbane Olympics, security will be a private security will be a key part of that response to those those games. So we need to make sure that we have the relationships. And there's, I think, a lot of it's built on trust. So uh, certainly we work very closely with, uh, for example, the police communications areas in terms of the triple zero responses. And again, to get a mutually beneficial outcome to reduce. You know, false alarm activation, so the police aren't going to false alarms. So if we work together, we can actually get outcomes which are better for the industry, better for the customers, and obviously better for law enforcement. So I think law enforcement realise that uh, they can't do it on their own. They really can't. Uh, and security with whatever, 170, 180-odd thousand security uh, workforce, it's a massive resource. And the electronic side, of fit, the protective security side is enormous. So if they harness that, and actually work with the industry rather than against it, it actually builds our overall capability. Yeah. Cameron, from your point of view, do you see us being able to reach a point where perhaps police understand that security is a tool that can be used and harnessed by police to help them uh, be more effective in their role as a perhaps opposed to the traditional point of view that was held back in the, the 90s and perhaps early 2000s where, you know, there was discussion around outsourcing certain policing roles and it was viewed in some circles that security were on some level a threat to police. 
instead make that transition to no, they're actually, you know, a tool for police, just like a, a, a hammer is a tool for a carpenter and not a threat to the carpenter. I think that's already happening, but as Brian said, it's based on trust. So at local levels, you've got, you know, if uh, a local area command identifies security companies operating in the, in the area that are very competent, very professional, then those relationships already happen. Uh, the way the hotel quarantine program was managed in New South Wales is an excellent example of police and uh, private security working hand in hand with very clearly defined roles. You know, there was no blurring of responsibilities, but um, there was a real partnership there that worked exceptionally well. Um, you know, we're back in the days when we had major events um, happening, uh, police and private security and venue operators would always sit around the table in the pre-planning stages and, and work together to make sure the risks were identified and addressed. So, um, but again, it's based on trust and as we improve the capabilities and the professionalism, the profile of the industry, the more police and other government agencies will trust them as a, as a partner. Okay. So in summary, at, towards the conclusion of the report, the report states, and I'm quoting from it directly here, um, that we are looking for a, a professional and well-trained workforce that is respected for the important frontline role they perform in safeguarding the interests of Australia and the greater community, where nationally consistent licensing and professional standards are enforced, where there is a strong culture of compliance and governance, and where technological innovation and industry adaptation are embraced. That's a lot to achieve in five years. And, you know, traditionally the industry has struggled around areas like uh, multi-tiered licensing arrangements and subcontract, sorry, multi-tiered subcontracting arrangements, zombie ABNs, um, other traditional points around things like overseas students and people on visitor visas working in the industry and other things. I mean, based on that quote, Gav, you know, is it reasonable to assume that we can get towards achieving that sort of thing in the next five years, or is that a longer-term goal? And and then, Brian, I'll ask you, is there a plan to do that? But, Gav, perhaps you can start us off. So I, th I think to the point that Brian made at the start of the discussion, if we don't know what good looks like, how do we aim for it? Yep. So one of the big challenges we had with trying to put together where we think we'll be in five years, and there's a whole section in the report around why we think, for example, technological adaption and adoption will be slower in Australia than places like the UK and Singapore. It's not easy to fix things that have been going on for a long time. The challenge we've got now though is timeframes are shortening, threat windows are moving quicker, and it's a, it's a challenge and it's a request to all the industry stakeholders to try and step up to do it. Is it achievable in five years? I hope so. But uh, practic practically, even if we move forward a little, where we're seeing, for example, the perception of the industry change, where we're seeing integration and convergence being accepted, where we're seeing, you know, for example, technological adaption and adoption being something that people aren't scared of. And they kind of go, hey, it's not going to mean gods lose jobs if we put up a camera with analytics. And then I think the other piece, which we highlighted as a clear opportunity, is that the security industry itself has not really embraced cybersecurity in Australia as heavily as they have in other countries. And it's really been more the RCT and, techno, um, and telecommunication sector 
that stepped up a little bit more. So there's big opportunities for us. And, you know, to kind of close off on that, if we don't coordinate work together with the aim of those different points intersecting, we may just have a very negative outcome and be forced to do it quickly because we're exposed to negative incidents. And, you know, hopefully, as, as with every good security initiative, you know, our goal is prevention and not letting bad stuff happen in the first place. So if we can get there, there's no reason why the security industry can't be, you know, an international exemplar that really does contribute to national security, become an employer of choice and constantly develop people into, you know, robust careers. But uh, to support your point, there's a lot of work to do. It's not going to happen on its own. And that's not going to happen with one stakeholder trying to do it alone. And uh, this is probably the last thing I'll, I'll say as my closing. If we can just try and get at, at the very least a spirit of collaboration between the different stakeholders, that's a good step forward. Uh, it's, it's really easy to be negative and to talk about all the things that are wrong with the industry. But when you look at just the stats of the contribution to the national economy, the number of people employed, and that's not even counting losses prevented, okay, which is a metric we couldn't get anywhere. We, we are a critical industry to our economic stability and to our national security. And there's a lot of reasons for us to keep trying to get better. So, Brian, perhaps you can close us out then. Um, we now have the report, which looks at recommendations for some of the things that need to be tackled over the next five years. What is the next stage for ASIL? Because the report is great, but now we need a plan. So what, what do you see happening moving forward? Well, from an ASIL point of view, what we'll, what we will now do is, obviously, we've already started some things, but put in place the building blocks to, to achieve uh, some of the outcomes that that are obviously needed for the industry. Um, for example, the issue of you know procurement practices, making sure there's transparency, you know, and there's uh, ethical practices that filters through to making sure people are remunerated properly. We need to make sure that everybody in that supply chain, from the you know the price makers to the price takers, everybody understands and it's transparent that everyone does the right thing. Uh, so I think that it, I'm probably more optimistic that we can, whether we get to 100% uh, of all the targets that we want to get to, but I think we have to break everything up into bite-sized pieces. Uh, but we need to bring everybody along on the journey. So if we go on our own uh, and leave the users behind or leave the regulators behind, I think we'll end up in a heap. So I think we've got to try and bring everyone along on that journey to, to contribute. We'll do uh, as much as we can as, as an association, but... There's you know 11,000 security companies across this country, uh, they've all got a role to play as well. So you know there's only what eight regulators. So there's a limited number of regulators, but again, uh, it's trying to get some collegiality between the three different groups to say this is in everybody's interest, not just the security industry interest, is everybody's interest. So hopefully we can uh, we can put some of the the foundations in place, but everybody else has to come to the party and actually play a role. Yeah. Okay. So if people want to get hold of a copy of the report, what's the best way to go about doing so? Uh, they, they can certainly go to the Asia website uh, and there's a, an executive summary and there's a full, if you can't digest the whole report, there's a 26 page one. So there's a variety of uh, formats to read, but we'd encourage people to read through it and actually contribute to, to building the industry capability and capacity. Uh, the 
the industry plays a key role, so don't underplay that. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate you taking the time to join us on the podcast. And uh, Gav, thank you to you and the Australian Security Research Centre for doing this important piece of research, which again was commissioned by ASIL. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to hear more podcasts like this one, there are a ton of insider podcasts in the ASIL series on Blurberry, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and all the other great places that you find podcasts. And we look forward to joining you on the next podcast. Thank you very much.